I'd like to greet you this morning with those words in Revelation chapter 1. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We certainly have a lot to be thankful for. So I um, want to greet you in that precious name of Jesus. Thank you for coming, and especially our visitors. We're, we're glad you're here, and um, we hope that you can worship together with us and learn something from the teaching and be inspired by the preaching of the word. Why, well, I um, think it would be fitting to have a sermon on Thanksgiving this morning. And so um, that's my plan. And so that's why I asked Leroy to, to read that psalm. And here at the beginning of, this, of the sermon, I just have a list of scriptures that I would like to read. Now, I recognize that there would be, let's say, just one implication in Scripture should be our demand, should be considered a demand for our lives. And I think that's how we should come to Scripture. But I also think that when there is time and time and time again a command, uh, one of the things that happen is we almost don't even think about it. So what I have is just a sampling of the scriptures that tell us to give thanks. There are so many that it would have, well, we could have just probably made a sermon out of just reading those scriptures. Um, so I, I didn't know that that would be what you'd be expecting this morning, so it's not what I have, but I do have a few. Psalm 79, verse 13. So we thy people... And the sheep of thy pastures will give thee thanks forever. We will show forth thy praise to all generations. Now just about last Sunday they changed this verse up here, but there had been Psalm 100. Uh, some of the verses in that psalm had been posted up here. Serve the Lord with gladness and come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name for the Lord is good and his mercy is from everlasting and his truth endureth to all generations. You know that there are so many exhortations in the Psalms to give thanks and that's the only two that I have. The rest that I have I think come from the New Testament. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this idea that you give thanks in everything, in everything, in every circumstance, in every situation, in everything give thanks. And then... The one, the one in Ephesians, giving thanks always for all things. Philippians 4, verse 6. Be thankful 
Hmm. Just about said that wrong. Be careful for nothing, it says. That means don't worry about anything. But in everything by prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Colossians 1, 12-14, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, whom he hath de- whom, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Colossians three fifteen to 17 And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body. And be ye thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Hebrews 13, verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. 1 Timothy 2, 1 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness, in all godliness and honesty. And Second, Colossians, Second Corinthians 9, verse 15, Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. And here again, this is just a smattering of the teaching that we have of giving thanks for what God has done for us. I have a list of things here that I would like to express thanks for. And after the sermon, I I hope this sermon is short enough so that after the sermon we can just have some time for you to express the things that you are thankful for. So if all of us would have a list that's this long, we'd be here for a long time, I'm sure. But I'm going to take the I'm going to take the liberty to have a long list, and and you may too if if you want to. That's fine. The gift of salvation, eternal life. I'm thankful for the gift of peace. I'm thankful for having been shown the way to God. I'm thankful that God is merciful and slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. I'm thankful for the gift of faith. I'm thankful for having been given the opportunity to repent. I'm thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit that dwells in this body. I'm thankful for the gift of love. I'm thankful for my wife and my family. I'm thankful that we can have relationships and friendships with people. There is such a thing as friends and brothers and sisters. I'm thankful for the church. I'm thankful for each of you. I am glad for the corrective and godly influence, the corrective input and the godly influence that you have brought into my life. I'm glad for the teaching that we have received here. I'm glad for the encouragement that you have given me. I'm thankful for the sermons I've listened to. Ever since I was a child, I can think back of sermons preached from the scriptures, teaching us, teaching me. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that we can sing together and that we can pray together. I'm thankful for the tough times I've been through. I hope that they have made me a more sensitive person. 
I was thinking about that, and then I also thought of that song, the old gospel song, Thank You for the Valley I Walked Through Today. The darker the valley, the more I learn to pray. Life can't be all blessings or there'd be no need to pray. So I thank you for the valley I walked through today. It's an old Dottie Rambo song, I think. I'm thankful that strained and even broken relationships can be restored. And I'm thankful for the grace of God when it seems that they can't be. I'm thankful for the beauty of nature. I'm I'm thankful for the beauty in art. I'm thankful for the orderliness in nature. I'm thankful for the gift of music and singing. I'm glad God gave us the ability to communicate. I'm thankful for joy and laughter. I'm thankful that I was given the opportunity to be raised in a Christian home. I'm glad for the guidance I was given by example, by training, and by teaching. I'm glad that I had good and godly teaching at home and at school and at church. I'm thankful that we can live in a land of freedom where we are able to preach and to teach as we understand the truth. I'm thankful that we can have a private school where we can teach our children the things that we and not the government value. I'm glad to live in the 21st century. We have doctors and hospitals. We have a low infant mortality rate. We have good pre- and postnatal care. I'm thankful for those things. And while we always have to earn our bread by the sweat of our face, just like Adam did, I'm thankful that I have a good job. I'm thankful that I can support my family. I can't imagine how it would be to see my children malnourished because I couldn't provide for them and sick because I couldn't afford healthy food or a house for my family to live in. I'm thankful for hope and that while we go through trials or we may experience loneliness Or we may endure the pain of being separated from our loved ones by death. I'm thankful that joy comes in the morning. I'm thankful for the promise of the resurrection. I'm thankful for the promise of heaven. I'm thankful that God is faithful. I'd like for us to think about the children of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt. Now, Paul tells us that these things, the, the Old Testament stories, were given for us for our learning. And so I want to I take a lesson from these, from these people this morning. When Jacob had come to Egypt while Joseph was prime minister or whatever his exact title was, I'm not sure. Jacob and his sons were given the best of the land down in Goshen where it was green and fertile. And it seems like Pharaoh recognized their expertise as cattlemen because he wanted the best of them 
the best of the sons of Jacob to be in charge of his cattle. And so they had, they were there in, in Egypt with the approval and by the welcome of the Pharaoh. But it says that there rose another king that didn't know Joseph. And this king had a real fear that after a while there would be too many Hebrews. That was the children of Israel. In comparison to the number of Egyptians, he was afraid that if they would be attacked, and they actually were, that the Hiskos, whoever those guys were, attacked the, the Egyptians during this time. And he was afraid that the Hebrews would join with the enemy. So this Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph was a xenophobic despot, if you please. And he came up with the idea that the best way to deal with the Hebrews would be to put them to work. And so now instead of them being a source of antagonism and them a, being a potential enemy, now they become a resource and an asset as they are slaves. So he put them, he put slave masters over them and he forced them to work for him. And it says that all the service wherewith they made them to serve was with rigor. This wasn't an easy task. This was burdensome and this was hard. <coughs> but they survived and they flourished and they thrived. And so he knew he had to do something else. So he tried to control their population by killing the boy babies. And he ordered the midwives to kill the boy babies, but that didn't work too well. The, the, the Hebrew, I'm sorry, the midwives made an excuse that the Hebrew women are lively, it says. They were so, they were so, um, quick when they had their babies that the midwives never had a chance to take the boys when they were bo born boy babies to kill them. So this was some kind of 50% infanticide that Pharaoh had ordered, but it didn't work too good. The babies were born too fast. So the next step was he ordered everybody. This wasn't just something that he ordered the kings or the, I mean the soldiers. This wasn't just something that was carried out in a military fashion, but he ordered everybody when they encounter a, a Hebrew boy to throw him into the Nile River. And so this is the setting where Moses was born. And so it was national policy to misuse and to afflict these poor people. This slavery and this oppression went on for years. 400, let's say more or less, if Joseph and his family had a positive experience for 30, we know that they were in Egypt for 430. Let's say more or less that they were under oppression in Egypt for 400 years. And so Moses was charged by God to lead the people out into deliverance. And it says, and I had never noticed this before, but it says that when Moses offered freedom and deliverance from Egypt, that 
they were the the oppression was so severe that they didn't hear because of their discouragement and because of the cruel bondage that they were under. But anyway, when Moses first broached this idea of freedom before Pharaoh, his response was that now not just did they have to make the bricks by the supplies that they were given, now they had to come up with their own supplies and still make the same amount of, of bricks. The output was just the same. So this, this bondage was severe and it was cruel. And it wasn't until God plagued the Egyptians those ten times that the Egyptians actually demanded the children of Israel to leave. And so they finally left. They left with a high hand. It says that means they marched out boldly. God opened the Red Sea for them to pass through. And God destroyed Pharaoh's army that had foolishly decided to pursue them through the Red Sea. Now, this, this, this to me is amazing. This, this, this Pharaoh is just amazing in his rashness. Did he actually think that God was going to extend the miracle of parting the Red Sea in deliverance for the Hebrews on over to Pharaoh who was pursuing them to bring them back into captivity? Was he so anxious to have his free labor back that he couldn't see straight? I think so. We know that God had hardened his heart. And the children of Israel sang a song of victory after that was all over and turned to Exodus chapter 15. And I want to show you something that is just really, really striking. Exodus chapter 15, starting to read in verse 20. So Moses sang a song. That's in the first part of chapter 15. Moses wrote this song and must have taught it to the children of Israel. And then there's also another song that Miriam sang. I want to read five verses. And I want you to think about how long it took from this song of victory to verse 24. Span of five verses. And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah because they were bitter. Therefore, because they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Merah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? In three days' time, they went from singing this song of victory to complaining. Now, we have to recognize that they were in a wilderness. And when we, th when we think of wilderness there, it's not like we would think of as 
wilderness around here as in, let's say, if you would have wanted to call this wilderness uh, what would have been here, let's say, 250 or 300 years ago, just completely unbroken and unsettled. But there was water here, right? There, there is no water. And apparently, the water they found wasn't good water. And they had a crowd of people. This was a million people, and this was all their livestock. This wasn't just that they were a little bit thirsty. I mean, this was dire straits. It, it actually was. They had to have water, or they were going to die of thirst. And it wasn't going to take long. This is three days in the wilderness. They didn't have water. But the thing is, is that they had forgotten something. They had forgotten who had delivered them. Now turn back to Exodus chapter 6. Verse 2, And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of, the, of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. Now here God introduces a new name for himself, and that is Jehovah. That means that God is the self-existent one, that he is the eternal one. So God is telling Moses that I am going to do this by myself. I am the self-existent one. I do not need any outside influence. I do not need any outside support or help to accomplish what I am going to do with you and with the children of Israel. He had promised it and he was going to, he was going to fulfill it. And so what God is telling Moses is, is that he could be trusted and that he could be dependable. But now the children of Israel didn't think about this when they were three days without water. They became focused on themselves. Their needs were legitimate, that's for sure, but they forgot God's providing hand. They diminished his power. And then in verse, or I should say back in chapter 16 of Exodus, when they became hungry, the first thing they thought of was the flesh pots of Egypt. Exodus 16. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now I want to suggest to you that this right here is the very definition of ungratefulness. They would have rather been under bondage and heavy servitude and slavery in Egypt and eat fish and leeks and melons and onions and that kind of stuff than to be free. They were willing, they said, to trade their freedom for a pot of meat. But again, they were diminishing the power of God. They were diminishing 
Jehovah God, the one who is self-existent, the one who had promised them that he would by himself bring them to the land of promise and who was going to sustain them in their freedom. And he sent them manna, but they got tired of it. Turn to Numbers 11. Numbers 11, verses 4 to 8. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell at lusting. So the mixed multitude was some of the ones that came along, some of the Egyptians that came along out of Egypt with them. So there was two categories of people here. It was the mixed multitude and the children of Israel. Right? And the mixed multitude that was among them fell at lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlics. But now our soul is dried away, and there is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. And the manna was as coriander seed, and the color thereof was as the color, color of delium. Back in Numbers 21, it says that they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea, to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way, and the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth. I can't say that hardly. Loatheth. In other words, our soul detests this light bread. This was the provision that God was so miraculous, miraculously sustaining with it, them with. And they said they loathed it. They detested it. But that is so typical of human nature. On the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty in the New York Harbor, are on a plaque inside the door the words of a poem written by Emma Lazarus titled The New Colossus. She was, uh, what's the term? Authorized, commissioned, I guess, to write a poem to raise money to build the pedestal on which that great statue today yet stands. The, the title of, of it is The New Colossus, and, and the foreport of the poem compares the old Colossus, which was one of the old uh, wonders of the ancient world. Nobody knows exactly how big it is, but it was huge, and supposedly it was big enough that ships and things could sail under or between this huge statue's legs that was standing across the harbor. But Emma Lazarus says, this is The New Colossus, and she writes this, Give me your tired, your poor. Your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of, of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless. Tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Those words have been inspiring to millions. 
of immigrants who came for freedom from the old country where they had been oppressed. But I want to say there's something here that probably isn't quite right. Maybe she wasn't quite right when she described the huddled masses as longing to breathe free when we think of the example of the children of Israel. It seems, it seems that one of the more common human instincts is wanting to be taken care of rather than shouldering the responsibility that comes with freedom. I want to spiritualize that for us. Yes, we want to be free, but we don't want to take the responsibilities that accompany freedom. Freedom is demanding. Freedom costs us something. It means that we have to take care of ourselves sometimes. But what it means for us in a spiritual sense is that now we have to choose to obey our new master. It's astounding. It's astounding how soon we forget how cruel the bondage of sin is. It took the children of Israel three days. Three days. We can so easily be like Hosea's whorish wife, Gomer. Hosea had been instructed by God to marry a prostitute. And he did, and they had some children. And she left him. And he actually went out and bought her from her pimp. Well, this is what Hosea writes. She shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then I, it was better with me than now. For she did not know that I, had give, that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Gomer hadn't understood that the things that she was offering to her false gods and giving to her lovers, not her real lovers, her real lover was the prophet Hosea. But she didn't understand that the things that she was offering had been given her by her true lover. And there's a lesson for that for, for us in that as well. And that's it's it's a very real temptation to the believer. Second Peter two twenty to twenty two. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. This is talking about people who have escaped bondage. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than the after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment given delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb. The dog is turned to his own vomit again. And the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now think with me about two vessels. One is the Egyptian flesh pot. And one is the basket of manna. 
Now, in the flesh pot, there's every indulgence of the flesh and of the mind that you can imagine. In there, you can reach your hand in there and you can get out money and you can get out sex and power and social status and you can get out drugs and alcohol and everything that accompanies the flesh. You can get out humanism and you can get out socialism and capitalisms and all the other isms that people believe in. You can get out carelessness. You can walk the broad way. Those things are in the flesh pot. Peter describes that kind of stuff as dog's vomit and pig's manure. And at the first, they're appealing and tantalizing, but it doesn't take long until it turns to woe and babbling and addiction and guilt and disease and loneliness and death. That's in the flesh pot. But in the basket of manna, there are the things that you really need. And they actually sustain you in your spiritual walk. The Spirit of God, the Holy Scriptures, the truth, the grace of God, and the church, the people of God. Everything you need to sustain you in your freedom is given to you. By miraculous provision. And so often, so often, it takes us three days It seems to me that what makes the difference in helping us decide between the manna and the flesh pot is thankfulness. That is gratitude and appreciation for what God has given us. Gratitude speaks of a feeling of indebtedness. It realizes its unworthiness. A grateful person recognizes that what he has comes from somewhere other than himself. And ultimately, that person will come to understand that he has someone to thank. Romans 1 talks about these people that didn't glorify God it says, neither were they thankful. See, the children of Israel couldn't enter the promised land because of their unbelief. So if you want to itemize, or I should say categorize, if you want to categorize unbelief and complaining and ungratefulness together with the flesh pots, that's just how it goes. That That is actually how it is. But... Gratefulness and believing and faith and love. And those things are the things that are in that basket of manna. Now, one of the things that I want us to think about, and I think this is going to become more pertinent in the future as, um, I, I don't know, it just it just seems that uh, the the United States society is bent on a socialistic kind of a government. And I don't, I don't want to get practical here, but I just want to give us a... I mean, I don't want to get political here. I just want to give us get practical here. I want to give us a warning. 
And that is that with a sense of entitlement goes a blindness to our obligation of giving of thanks. Turn to Luke 17. This is the story of the man that we know of as the grateful leper. Luke 17, verse 11. And it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, We're not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? They're not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. It seems to me that the one who was actually truly grateful here was the one that sensed or didn't have a sense of entitlement. He was an outcast in his society that he lived in. This was obviously in Galilee because he was a stranger. He was designated as the only Samaritan in this bunch. And so as the, as the world around us becomes more and more entrenched with a feeling of entitlement and in that everybody owes me something, just because that I am is merit enough that you have to give me what I want. That's entitlement. But that blinds us to our obligation to express thanks And if we want to extend that, and that's what I want you to understand, is that thanksgiving and gratitude goes together with understanding that the things that we have been given, we don't deserve. And so we know that the good things that we have been given come from somewhere outside of ourselves. So I'd like to have just a few practical things here at closing. I'd like to endorse and to promote the giving of thanks for the food that we are about to enjoy when we sit down at a table. I don't care where it is. Just take time to thank God for your food. Jesus did this. He did this at the feeding of the 3,000. He did this at the Last Supper. Before he broke the bread, he gave thanks. There's just about nothing that's more ordinary and perhaps even earthy, than to take in food into our bodies and consume it. We have to eat. And by thanking God before we eat, and perhaps even afterwards, we are showing our gratitude to Him, and we are reminding ourselves of how dependent we are on Him. So this thankfulness will teach us, this I should say this habit of expressing thanks will teach us that we are not entitled to anything. 
So teach your children the habit of saying thank you for the same reason. Now perhaps the ultimate expression of giving thanks is something like what is found in Micah. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? God doesn't want some, God doesn't so much want your stuff. He wants you. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, except, which is your reasonable service, right? Something like that. Our reasonable service is to offer our bodies, who we are and the things that we want to be, to God in gratitude for what he has done for us. Let's kneel for prayer.